Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I am your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Philip Belamath, co-founder and CEO of Zilch. Before starting Zilch, Philip founded fintech companies in developing economies including a mobile payment service and a leading fintech company in Africa. Philip graduated cum laude from RAU University in South Africa where he completed both BSc IT and BSc IT honors degrees. He won UK's Great British Entrepreneur of the Year award in 2021 and Zilch was recognized with Scale-up Company during the same year. Join me as we explore Philip's journey from Africa to the UK, his focus on improving people's lives using technology, the inspiration behind Zilch's pioneering ad-subsidized payments network, what leading Europe's fastest ever company to go from launch to unicorn feels like and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey Taran, good. Thanks for having me here. So, where are you calling in from? Right now I'm sitting in London as we speak, but you know, very often I'm in Miami in our HQ, US HQ out that side, so a little bit between and as you can imagine, um London is a beautiful slight drizzle today uh and overcast. <laughs> so, uh yeah, no, nothing. The weather is as you would have expected it. Do you prefer Miami's weather? I think everybody prefers Miami's weather. <laughs> Although I do I do actually see that that it looks like it might get a little bit um a little bit hairy later this week actually it seems uh on the weather warning side but otherwise um yeah I think largely most of our team is very happy to go to our Miami office. Awesome. All right. Let's dive right in. So for our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, so my my career in 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 tech and payments really started really through programming at a at a young age. So, you know, I started it was just something that appealed to me and resonated with me while I was still in 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 school, and I used to spend a lot of time making games, you know, with Turbo Pascal or whatever the language was at the time. And 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 that's really where my love for technology started. I started then following a number of businesses at the time that were really interesting technology companies. Um you know we'd had some job shadowing programs things like that that was quite interesting. But what I found was that it was very difficult to really get a true sense of how you can make a meaningful impact to people's lives through technology. You used to read a lot about this or hear a lot about it but it was very difficult in fact to see this in practice. And so, you know, and so that was something that for me I was quite interested in in trying to understand how is it that I can make use of tech to really change people's lives for the better. And so, in university, you know, was was a lot of good fun specifically focused on AI, mobile development, which at the time was obviously not a big industry. And um, you know, and out of university started a mobile gaming company. that um you know initially we started people could basically play these games and it was a social gaming business you could compete against one another with these games and you could use your airtime or data to pay for these games or to transfer this credit to one another and and largely we failed completely at being successful at gaming but what we did find is people were using our credits to transfer airtime and data to one another almost in a peer to peer payment fashion but think about this on kind of old school Nokia 3310 green screen type phones you know um that weren't the sophisticated devices we have today and so we actually turned the business into a mobile payments company 
And that business became quite successful. And one of our most successful products was a pure, I, I believe where I fell in love with tech changing people's lives, the, the better was our um, lending business in airtime. So, you know, in Africa, a lot of people don't know, I'm, you know, half South African, actually half French, uh, but I grew up in South Africa. And in South Africa and a lot of Africa at the time, people didn't have cell phone contracts. They had uh, prepaid airtime. You had to go and buy prepaid airtime. And people would travel vast distances on the weekends and they would queue for hours away from family and friends just to buy a scratch card to get airtime or, for instance, to pay an electricity bill or buy data. And the challenge was, how do we use technology to fundamentally disrupt this experience for the customer for the better? And, and what we came up with at the time is we could just lend the customer the airtime in their home on the weekend, and they could repay us when they were at work on their way to work in the week. And it sounds simple, but no one could find a solution to this because everyone started trying to tackle it the same way, which was let's try to give them a bank account or a wallet that they need to hold deposits in. And then they could use that digital money to pay on the weekend via their phone. But the problem was that wasn't convenient to the customer. What was convenient was to leave all the infrastructure that preexisted intact, the mobile network operator infrastructure, how the customer goes about their life, leave that the same but fundamentally change how this customer is buying the service on the weekend. And, and we did that through lending. And so that's where I really, for the first time ever, you know, felt, wow, you can truly change people's lives for the better through technology and through the use of technology. And sort of that's where my career really then started. We rolled that business into about 27 plus African countries. You know, that became a very successful business and then moved from there you know, over to the UK about eight years ago, had completely exited that company and moved on to creating Zilch uh, with my co-founder. And so really Zilch is, is, is a very similar uh, thesis and ethos, which was how do we go and change people's lives for the better using technology? And Zilch is really all about access. How do we give people access uh, to something otherwise typically reserved for the top 1%? You know, so how do people get true access to uh, free credit and, you know, mega discounts, deals and rewards that normally you would only get if you were on some platinum super chase product uh, in the top 1%, you know, and uh, basically uh, being typically shut out of having access to this type of, of features or products. And so, so the arbitrage that we're after in this business is really giving the mass market consumer, the everyday person like us, the opportunity to benefit from um, the deals, discounts, rewards, and access to free credit that otherwise would be reserved for the, the small few. And, 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 you know, to date, that's resonated with 2.6 million people in just two years, growing by a quarter million people a month. And we think that, you know, certainly this is resonating and changing people's lives for the better. So, so that's, a, you know, an, in a nutshell journey of kind of, the, the beginning po uh, starting point of, of the career, um, which largely was, as I say, a, a failure, pivoting that into something that became very meaningful to the customers we were servicing and then obviously moving on in that vein and building something new very recently. And so that's, that's basically, in the nutshell, uh, the long and short story. That's truly fascinating. 
Can you dive a bit deeper into sales, the services offered? How do you earn revenue? Who are your main competitors? Yes, sure. So, you know, with Zilch, what was fascinating to us was we looked at the market and, you know, effectively, when you look at emerging markets, access to credit is very expensive. Typically, you do not expect that to be the case when you look at developed markets. And so coming from Africa, we would expect to see that credit was expensive in countries we went to. It doesn't mean it's right, but we would expect to see that because that innovation hadn't happened yet, or evolution at least. What you do see is that, and I was surprised by this, is that when I moved to the UK and, of course, looking at the US, we noticed, in fact, that the problem is just as big, in fact, if not larger. Uh, And if you really look at the problem, the problem is a trillion-dollar issue, and that is that you have more than a trillion dollars sitting on credit cards across the US and the UK. Almost 900 billion of that, by the way, sitting in the US alone, revolving at high interest rates. And so you have consumers today paying $140 billion a year and more than that now in fees and interest to credit card companies. And I found that fascinating. How is it that we have a developed economy and developed market like we do in the US and the UK, leading globally, you know, where the vast majority of people in these countries are still being penalized for access to credit. It's pretty phenomenal to see it. And so that really became the challenge. That was how we, that's what we set out to solve. So, you know, people talk about these decks and you have the problem, the solution, the size of the market. That really became the problem. A trillion dollars sitting on credit cards. They haven't changed since the 1950s when they were introduced. They overcharge customers and revolve you into a position of debt that you cannot afford to repay. Feels a bit like a student loan, right? <laughs> you know, you, you come out of university and what do you have? You have a, a bunch of really good friends and you've learned how to time manage largely, uh, which is fantastic uh, and I do think very meaningful. Um, and otherwise, you've got a lot of debt. And what do you do? about that? And how do you really go and progress from there? And so, you know, credit card debt feels worse than that. On average, it can take households between 16 and 20 years to repay credit card debt. That's an average, right? And so, and so there's a lot of deviation from the norm on the, bit, on, the, on the down and the upside there, but, you know, it's something we need to just be cognizant of. And so our mission at Zilch was to say, how do we take that $140 billion of fees a year that people are paying to credit card companies and turn it into zero, zilch, nothing. And that's where the name came from. And so that's why we have the name up on the wall in bright lights so that everyone can appreciate this each and every time you walk in. It's not about sales. It's not about, you know, any of these other metrics. All it's about is how much have we saved customers so far today in fees and interest? And how close are we to $140 billion per annum? That's the goal, and that's what we're trying to achieve. So, so how we deliver that in the market is that customers sign up for our product, they link their bank account to our product, and we issue them with a virtual card. They save it to Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or their browser. And customers are able to go anywhere and pay in four for free, no interest of any kind, no late fees. Or they can pay in one and get cash back deals and discounts, which is two or three times what you might get from companies like Chase. right? And effectively, how are we doing that? We are sitting at the intersection of payments, lending, and advertising. So we effectively take advertising dollars. So each time our customers go and transact and spend, brands pay us ad dollars for that. 
and we're using that to amortize the cost of credit or discounts, deals, and rewards. And so, so really what we believe we've built is an ad-subsidized payments network, the first of its kind, never seen before. If you think about today, you've interviewed a number of people on this podcast over the last two years, spoken to a lot of interesting businesses. I don't think you've ever found one that's doing that, this, this before. So, so we're really excited uh, about what we're doing. And obviously, we've got a lot of customers excited about this too. So you know, we think that this is the best way forward. It allows people to transact privately in this cookie-less world we're in. It allows brands to engage directly with, with customers in a meaningful, compliant way and all of which unlocks more and more value for customers each and every time they spend. What's interesting about Zilch is that it deviates from the traditional buy now operator model, that it doesn't focus on checkout per se. What inspired you to take a different approach? Yeah, I mean, really, when we kicked off the business, we looked at credit cards and we said, well, who's doing anything about this problem? Who's actually trying to solve this problem? And you ended up with two factions. You really had credit card issuers, I mean, effectively, companies, interesting, cool companies like uh, um, Upgrade, Time It, businesses like this, right? And so these businesses were trying to make the experience more easy to understand. So the problem with credit cards traditionally is that I actually don't know how much I owe and when I owe it and what it will cost me. And of course, it was designed this way for a reason. They don't want you to know. So, so these businesses were trying to make that more transparent, which we really liked. The only problem was, is that they don't ultimately change the burden of the cost, and that is still borne by the customer. So the customer may actually be, end up paying a bit less because they can better understand what's going on and when it's happening, but they still pay. So what we did is we started looking at the other side, which was point-of-sale finance. And this was these buttons on the checkout page you see where I can click this button and pay over time buy now, pay later, people started calling it. Um, and this is companies like Affirm or Klarna, et cetera. And we really liked what they were doing only for one reason. And that was because they were taking some revenue from the retailer and they were using that to offset the cost of the credit to the customer, either completely or partially. And that was honestly the first time I had a look at this and noticed and thought, wow, that's really interesting. That's fascinating. That will help bring the $140 billion of fees and interest per annum down. That's really quite interesting. But of course, there was a couple problems with this business model. And, you know, we, we sort of spoke a lot about this three years ago already when we were setting up and people were like, mm, yeah, I don't know. And of course, today, everyone is going, uh, yeah, I think you guys were right on that one. And, that, and, and the problems with this model were simple. It's set up very much like a payment processing company, these buttons on the checkout page. And so this is a movie that a lot of us have all seen before. Over the last 20 years, we've watched payment processing companies go through the same pain that these guys are going through. And there's a few things going on. One, the competition is fierce. So what happens is everyone starts undercutting each other. It's called a race to zero. And that's what you're finding right now, right? These are all suppliers. There's an oversupply of these people. And there's an under-demand, and so basic economics tells us the price must come down, and that's what's happening. Everyone's having to lower the price, lower the price, lower the price. So in payment processing, 20 years ago, you could charge maybe 4 or 5% per transaction. Today, you're lucky if you're charging 10 basis points. So we're sort of sitting in the cinema watching this movie play out, and we're thinking, hang on, are we the only ones in here? I mean, we've seen this before. Why is this a surprise to everyone? 
And so these providers are sitting on the checkout page. They're on the PL as a cost line item. And so every year the CFO calls you up and says, hey, I want a better deal. And then on top of that, they've had to make promises to these brands because brands want conversion. So these buttons have had to guarantee that they will lend to X many customers that hit that button on the checkout page when they hit it. And the issue is that that SLA is blind to the economy. It's blind to what's happening on affordability or to what's going on from a macroeconomic point of view. It doesn't see any of that. So these are four-year deals that are ignorant to what's happening in the market. And so what's happening is that as consumers come under a bit more pressure and maybe they can't afford this transaction, well, these buttons are lending to them anyway. And so you have the bad debt is rising. The revenue is way down because they've all undercut one another. And so basically, you've had the unit economic flip upside down. That's the problem. And that's why you see these companies, as they get bigger, they actually lose more money, right? Which is quite funny when you think about sort of business 101, it doesn't seem to make much sense, right? And so the unit economic is all, all the wrong way around. And so for that reason, we decided you can't do it this way. You also can't serve two customers at one time. And these buttons, really their customers are the retailers. But the consumer is the, the end consumer is actually consuming the service as a result of their deal with the retailer. But how can you possibly keep both parties happy at any given time? And so with Zilch, what we did is we said, let's take the best of both of this. People do love credit cards, and there's a reason for it. They love the rewards. They love the points. They love the fact they can defer the cost of something. They also love the buyer's protection. I can charge this back, right? We love that. We don't love the anxiety around whether or not we can afford it. That we don't like. We don't like the fees. We don't like the interest. So, but there's a bunch we like. Also on debit cards, there's a bunch that consumers like. There's no anxiety around, can I afford this? I understand it's easy for me to manage my money because I know what's in my account and it's here today and I swipe and it's gone. It's easy to manage and it's pervasive and it's uh, ubiquitous and it's easy to understand and it works everywhere. So I like that about debit cards. So what we did is we said, why don't we combine the best of credit and debit and give that to our customers? In other words, an easy, transparent way to understand what you owe, when you owe it, no late fees, no APR, no interest. Who knows even what APR means, right? I don't think most people would even be able to tell you what the acronym stands for, let alone how to actually work it out. I mean, you know, if you, let me ask you this question, Tarang, have you used a, a credit card before? Yeah, I have. Okay, so take your credit card as an example. Let's say you had $100 outstanding for 45 days past the charge, the free period. How much would it cost you? About the APR is about, I think, 26%. So that's analyzed rate. We divide it. And I don't know. I'm not that good at math, I think. No, you. I think you are. I think the point is no one knows. <laughs> that's the point, right? Uh, you know, I can tell you, we've asked a number of people. We're actually doing a marketing campaign on this right now. But we've asked a number of people from these companies. I've given them a calculator in five minutes. They still can't tell me. All right. And that's the issue. So what we're doing at Zilch is we're saying, here's one product. You don't need a card that's a credit card or a charge card. Why? That's so old school. Here's this virtual product. And through your app, you tell it how to behave each and every time you spend. Next time, I would like this to offset the price over time. The next time I spend, in fact, take everything from my bank and give me 5% cash back. 
and so on and so forth. And by the way, I can change my mind. Why is it that we're still carrying around this piece of plastic that tells us this is a debit card? This is a charge card. Why is it that we don't have an app that dynamically switches between all of these iterations and gives us the best, most meaningful and rewarding way to pay each and every time we do so? And that's what we've built with Zilch. So it's combining the best of both approaches, but very importantly, going direct to the consumer, not through the retailer, right? You can go to one of these race to zero companies through the retailer. That's, that's fine. We're going direct to the customer and saying to that customer, you're going to sign up with Zilch. We're going to do our AML PEP sanction, OFAC check. You're going to onboard you. We're going to do a full 360 degree view of your affordability and we're going to help you spend in the most meaningful way for anything you want anywhere. That's really the aspiration of the business. And that's very different to us saying, here's a revolving line of credit you'll never understand and you're going to pay a lot of fees to us. Or here's a button on a checkout page that may incentivize you to buy on impulse, may not take into account your affordability, but really is solely there to drive sales for retailers. Good luck. We don't want to be one of those other two things. We want to be directly in the middle for the consumer and everything we build bears in mind the consumer first and foremost. What I love about your answer is that it is so customer focused, right? And in fact, when I was doing my research on Zilch, that is one of the core tenants that it's a very customer first business. And that answer like illustrates why. Yeah. And I, and I think, and I think Turin, the important thing here is it's not just about saying it's customer first. It's about how you behave when no one is watching, Right. And that's what we do in the company. Our entire organization is actually set up in a matrix style. So we have domains and the domains are quite literally uh, named after customer actions. So basically we have one entire full stack, engineering, business science, data, a full stack team just focusing on new customers. So new customers sign up with us. How long does it take? What's annoying? What's rubbish? What's great? And how do we iterate that? We have an entire team just worrying about that. And then, of course, customers spend with us. We have a whole domain called spend. And it's all about how do you spend? What are all the ways you can spend? What are all the ways you can't spend? What's annoying about being declined? What do customers hate? What do they love about spending? And then, of course, we have retain. How do we uh, have customers stay around? Why would they stay with us? What can we do to delight and surprise customers? When do we delight and surprise customers? And so the whole business is built around the customer. It's not a slogan on a wall like most companies that says customer first, and then you join the business, get into the meetings, and no one ever talks about the customer. So, so we've done things very differently from the ground up as we got started here. And this goes back to you know when we founded the business, starting by getting regulation done. We went and got our license way before the regulator even started looking at the space. Right. I know a lot of firms today say, oh, we encourage regulation. Of course you do now that the regulators announced it. <laughs> right. I wonder if why weren't you saying that two years ago? Why didn't you go put the piece of paper in? You could have filled the piece of paper out and submitted it. Right. But you didn't do that. You waited for them to say, no, no, we're looking at you now. So so, you know, it's it's just really about how you act. And I think that's also why we've managed to attract so much phenomenal talent into the business, because it resonates with people. I want to work at a firm that does the right thing, right, by its customers, not because anyone's told them they have to, because that's how they've built the company. It's at the core of what they do. 
So, you know, when we say we're all about customer first, it's, it's what we obsess over uh, each and every day. And we've built the entire structure of the business around it. I don't think you can have, you can get it right unless you do that. And I think a very interesting fact that a lot of people might not know about Zilch is that it's Europe's fastest ever company to go from launch to unicorn, which is absolutely amazing, right? But that journey was not easy as far as I know, especially with the pandemic happening around the same time. So can you talk to us about what were the challenges you faced? How did you stay afloat? And why did you pick Europe and London to set up sales? Yeah, I mean, it's just been honestly a fantastic ride for everyone in the business and our customers. The, the beneficiaries of this success so far has been 2.6 million people. You know, and that's always what we remind the team about is we could celebrate milestones like funding and valuations. And it's exciting because it's the fuel that's needed to deliver, but it's not what's important, right? It's about the destination and, and getting there. Uh, it's a bit like you don't buy a car to fill up with fuel. You don't celebrate that. You, you buy it to travel from point A to point B and, and getting to point B is the objective. You just happen to need the fuel to get there. And so whilst, of course, we are very grateful for the support you know, we could not do this without the stakeholders and investors around the business. And we certainly feel that each and every day and we will deliver. It's, it's really for the customers. And I would like to believe investors have put their money into this business because they want to see the positive change in people's lives. And so I think that is what's helped us get to the scale we got to so fast, really. You know, going from sort of zero to $2 billion valuation in such a short period of time. It was, you know, the fastest, as you say, fastest ever out of Europe, you know, to get to that valuation in that period of time, zero to 2.6 million customers in just 18 months. You know, it's pretty phenomenal to see. But I really think that it's a testament to what we're doing and the problem that we're solving for customers that sees us get there. And, you know, we're just fortunate to come in every day. We had, we had a, a big all hands recently, and it's fascinating to see people you know, we've got so much to do. There's always a problem and something to fix, but people, you know, get up in the morning and the mindset is not that I have to do this today. The mindset is I get to do this. That's really, really important. Always to remember when you're busy and there's a lot going on is we get to wake up every morning and dramatically impact, uh, you know, millions of people's lives with what, we, what we're doing or are about to do. And that's really encouraging. So I hope that at least answers the first part of the question. Uh, which was, you know, sort of, it's been amazing to get to that valuation quick. But but as you say, there's been obstacles. And, you know, we really, a lot of people are saying there's a downturn coming and it's, you know, it's going to be tough. And by the way, I think, you know, we would probably say we think that's right. It, it, it's not going to be easy. But we remind people that, you know, we were kind of, we were born in the dark. You know, we we, we started this business and we we sort of went straight into COVID. And so in the short life of this company, we've really existed mostly in the middle of COVID, uh, you know, global pandemic. And everyone said, oh, my God, it's terrible. And things were changing. And all of a sudden, people had to work from home and all of those good things. And, and that's, that's when we were born. You know, that's what we had to deal with. So we've really had quite a, um, a number of obstacles thrown our way right from the get-go. But again, I think it comes back to the mission and the culture of the team that's helped us so far, at least, to get through this, you know, and all of these challenges. And that is if we have a Northern Star that people get up every morning and are excited about, you attract the right type of people, you have the right type of culture, and it really doesn't matter where anyone is or what's going on. People feel compelled 
to drive that mission forward. That's that's our belief. And so, you know, so I think it's definitely been, you know, there's been a number of ups and downs so far, and it's only you know, three and a little bit years in the business, but, you know, global ca- pandemic, now we have this downturn, you know, there's a whole bunch of other obstacles in the middle. And so, you know, it's kind of a little bit like we're sort of getting used to the fact that there's just always something going on. Um, the question is, how can we use these periods of time as opportunities and leverage them to leapfrog the competition? You know, so so when, when the going is good, we really want to thrive. And when the going is not so good, cannibalize the competition so that we emerge even stronger after the fact. Um, but, but yeah, uh, that, that's a little bit about at least how we felt um, on the ride so far. Sort of continuing that question, right? Why why pick Europe and London to set up sales? Was there something specific about this ecosystem that attracted you? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I mean, you know, to be fair, so as I mentioned, you know, I'm South African. And really, for me, there was an interesting opportunity to build something on a global stage. And the question is, well, where do you build it? Now, obviously, you know, a lot of people will default to to the US because, you know, arguably still one of the biggest economies today in the world and, and such a phenomenal place to build a high growth fintech type business. But we can't ignore the same population size if you had to put all of Europe together, including the UK. And then, you know, I genuinely think the world tends to uh, discount or ignore the other 7 billion people that are in emerging markets. And you look at very big markets, you know, Brazil, Mexico, Africa, um, and of course you get numerous others that is going to really create that next phase of growth. And, and we want to be conscious of that. So, so the way we thought about it is if we go and set up in the U.S., it, it sort of moves the business away from, being able, from us being able to manage this in a global ambition. If we set up in London – it's a melting pot of culture. It's a hugely diverse city. And, you know, everyone from here has different backgrounds from different countries, similar to, you know, places, you know, like, for instance, Miami, which is why we love Miami so much. But we love that cultural diversity and background diversity because we can bake it into our product. Our product is really maspirational. We want it to appeal to everybody. And so we said, let's set up in London this gives us, you know, six hours to the East Coast. So the US-wise, not dramatically off in terms of time zone on the East Coast. That's why we set up a shop on the East Coast and, and Miami, for the reason I just mentioned, just phenomenal uh, cultural place to be, backgrounds and, uh, you know, a lot of flight to Miami and we think it's a really exciting place to be. And so you sort of were able to now manage US, Europe, you can see Africa, you know, and you've really got the opportunity to manage our global ambition from London. What I found in my previous business is that we actually had set up shop in San Francisco with an office at one point, and it put us a little bit out of touch with um, Africa and Europe. It was difficult to stay in touch uh, with those places from there. And so this is why we felt, you know what, this is a great hub for us to set up our HQ, and from there we can coordinate this global ambition. Um, so I hope that gives you a bit of insight as to why the UK and now, of course, Miami. Also talking about diversity and talent. I know Zilch was really hiring recently, but are you still continuing that hiring spree? If yes, what is that you look for in potential colleagues? 
So the answer is yes. I mean, we've grown substantially through the year already. We've made over 150 hires just in this year so far to date. So, so basically, where we're at right now with the business and how we think about talent is we really have the team contribute significantly to all of the hiring process. So we have a talent acquisition team that really goes and finds the types of profiles that um, you know would match what people want to see around them, even if it's someone that might lead their team. And then we have a lot of the team involved in those interviews. So, you know, if we have someone coming in as a new CTO, we have a lot of the engineering leads, et cetera, actually interviewing this person. Is this someone I think I can learn from? Is this someone that, that will excite me to come to work and can help me when it's 12 at night, I can't figure something out? And that's really important. And so, and so involving the team in the hiring process has been a major part of how we've grown the team. But also advertising to potential candidates, our mission, what we're about, how we're going about it, why we differentiate it, but then also who they will be working with. So what you tend to find with roles is that you learn a lot about the leadership of a company. So they'll say, oh, you know, these are the, this is the executive team or this is who you're reporting to and you'll meet that person, they'll interview. What we think resonates is actually who am I going to work with every day? Who are my colleagues? Who am I going to be surrounded by? Oh, wow. Okay. We've got X Meta over here, X Google, X Amazon. Look at the experience around me. And when I'm joining a business, that's what I would want, right? I would want to know that I'm sitting down in a room working on something surrounded by people who have seen it before. I can learn from, they can teach me something. I can hopefully teach them something. And that's really encouraging to see. Of course, I want to know the management's fantastic. And of course, the executive should be great at strategy and we're going in the right direction. The mission's critical. That's no, there's no doubt about that. But I feel that people knowing who's around them, so where I fit in in the company, who would be around me on a day-to-day basis in my team has been really critical for us and brought us a lot of success in the recruitment process. And then, of course, thereafter, it's, it's hanging on to great people. So a lot of people think it's all about attracting talent, actually half the battle is keeping them. Um, Because if you can keep phenomenal people in your business, they'll tell other phenomenal people. And so, you know, that's really where we focused hugely on this year, particularly is how do we train? How do we upskill? How do we retain this amazing talent so that they go and bring along everyone they used to work with somewhere else, or they go and encourage people who are thinking about joining our business to do so. The next question I would have is more broad or more macro, right? In your observation, what are some trends in the fintech industry that are going to really shape the future for, let's say, the next five years or so? Wow, that's an interesting question. Well, I would say if you look at something like what we're doing right now, and you forget about us as a business, okay, because let's, let's not worry too much about that, but I think understanding how customers can get more value out of payments and how we can specifically target payments as a way to enable commerce would be very interesting. And, and what I mean by that is, is if you think about what's happened in, let's say, search, so take Google, right? What they did to, uh, for all of us in search is they gave us something really very valuable and useful to our daily lives. And on top of that habitual usage, you're able to have buyers meet sellers and add dollars change hands for that to happen, which enables the flywheel to go around. Social's been similar, right? And whether you pick one or other social network, you know, TikTok or Meta or any, pick one. 
similar thing. Given us something, frankly, useful, you know, um, how useful they are these days varies, of course, by who you talk to and what people use them for. But they were useful. And on top of that, buyers could meet sellers and ad dollars could be changed, um, you know, to make that happen. No one's really done that in payments, if you think about it, which is bizarre considering at the heart of all commerce is payment. And so I think the Googleization of payment, this ability for people to generate ad dollars each and every time customers transact, and then making use of those ad dollars to offset the cost for customers or to give them better access to different services like credit or rewards, et cetera, I think is a very interesting concept that, of course, we believe at Zilch we're pioneering, but you know, we, we will not be the only one. Uh, we can't be. We, we need so many more businesses to do this. Uh, you know, to get it right at the level it needs to be gotten right at. So I think, you know, the way payments transforms and is part of commerce ultimately is very interesting going forward. And and you probably could see this then move into something else, which is more Web3, you know, this a virtual uh, implementation of things. If you think about there's a number of things in the real world that are very difficult for us to deliver, you know, you can do that more meaningfully or easily through smart contracts in a Web3 type environment, virtual environment. So there's definitely some merit to the direction of travel we see there, uh, exactly how and how fast uh, up for debate. But um, certainly there's some merit in this. You know, blockchain technology still remains something we firmly believe in. You know, let's not talk about crypto specifically, but blockchain, I would say certainly we're seeing it disrupt old school systems, you know, uh, payment systems, clearing and settlement. There's a lot of opportunity in blockchain. Um, and so we're very big supporters of this as well. So I would say these are three areas certainly where, you know, at, at a macro level, we are quite interested. The last one I'll leave you with is ownership. And, and that is, you know, in this world today, you know, I think the world is on fire. We all know that. And how do we make sure that we're contributing towards that problem um, or sorry, you know, eliminating that problem um, in everything that we do. And I think ownership is certainly one of those things. Do we all need to own everything um, that we have in our possession at any given time? Or in fact, would it be more prudent for us to be renting most of everything and that being able to be recycled or passed on or used elsewhere? And, you know, that's something that Zilch is exploring certainly um, is a world whereby, you know, people don't necessarily need to buy, consume, own, and throw into a landfill every single thing, uh, you know, something that certainly resonates with us. So these are some of the more macro um, topics that, that I would suggest anyway will have some meaning moving forward. For the last segment, what I like to do is introduce you as a person to the listeners. So just a quick rapid fire round of questions. My first sure. question would be, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, I would say a fun fact is that probably that I'm half South African, half French, and um, I'm not sure actually how fun that fact is, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> probably that I'm I'm the most um, successful, unsuccessful gaming founder the, <laughs> that uh, South Africa has <laughs> ever seen is probably a fun fact. What has been a, or who has been a support system over the years? I would say early on, I was very fortunate that um, my father and my mother were a fantastic support system, certainly so. Um, and in tech and my career, my father from a technology perspective and my mother from a 
you know, counseling uh, perspective. But but more so today, you know, I get a lot of that support from my wife. She's been with me through all of my entrepreneurial journey for right from my first business to today, you know. And so I'm very fortunate to have her uh, to lean on and to bounce things off on an ongoing daily basis. If you had a time machine and you could go back in time, is there anything about your journey that you would change? Bitcoin. Bitcoin at one. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, carry on. <laughs> no, no, that I think that's a fair answer. A lot of us would do that. <laughs> no, sorry, I didn't actually let you finish the question. I thought you were going to say, "What would I go back and do?" I was going to buy a lot of Bitcoin, but anyways, you were going to say, "Yeah, no, I, this is—is there anything about the journey that you would change? Maybe the sequence of events, maybe any decision." Um, in 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 Zilch specifically, or you mean just generally? Generally, I have a time machine. Take your pick. No, I mean, I, I think it would be hard for anyone. Whenever I see or people ask that question, I, I think they probably all allude to a similar thing. I just, I just think the problem is you don't know what changing something might do, you know, in, a, in, in the later course of your life or, you know, you expect that maybe it's got a positive outcome and it doesn't. You know, specifically, there's been numerous times where something has not gone well that's resulted in a much better outcome. I'll give you one quick example. Right at the beginning of COVID, you know, we had an investor that was going to invest in Zilch for a million pounds for half of the company. And, you know, it turns out that they never did this deal. COVID came along. They didn't do it. And we had to move forward without them. And, and we would never have been able to build the business to a $2 billion company in the short period of time if we had had this investor. It would never have happened. And so this was just a great example of at the time, it was very painful. And we thought, oh, you know, well, we worked so hard to get that investor in. It didn't happen. Uh, but actually, it ended up being a much better outcome for us. So, so it's hard to say that I would change anything, really. And my last question would be, you're an entrepreneur who has seen success and who has seen failure. Is there any advice you would like to give to an aspiring entrepreneur, especially if they want to break in or especially if they're thinking of the fintech space? Um, generally, the only advice that I do give is that people should really just go and do it. Um, you know, everyone's got a great idea and the idea means absolutely nothing. So, you know, you find that a lot of people talk about, Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build that. Most people you hear talking about things, never do any of them. Um, you know, so my only advice would be, if you think you've got something interesting, go and build it. Don't tell anyone about it. No one needs to know about it. Go and build it, do the work, Go and work on it every single day, you know, go and do it. And then by the time, you know, you're done with it, people will know about it. They'll read about it and they'll come and they'll speak to you about it. So, so that's really the only advice I have for people is, is everyone's got a phenomenal ideas. I mean, I've heard everyone's got some brilliant ideas, but no one cares about those ideas unless you do something about them. So, so really the advice is just go and start right now. You don't need the new laptop to do it. You don't need the thing. You don't need to have the experience. You don't. Just go and start now. Do it. On that note, I will let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being on today, Philip. It was amazing to have you on the podcast. Not a problem at all. Thanks for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walt in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. 
it means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast and find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at wharton fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry as always special thanks to our editor rafael ostria signing off until next time i am your host tarang gupta Thank you.